Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for May 25th, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film senior writer Ben Pearson, and joining me today are Slash Film managing editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer Chris Evangelista. Hello. All right, guys. So let's talk about uh, the news today. And one of the most important stories of the day happened early this morning, and that is that Harvey Weinstein has finally been arrested by the New York Police Department. He was charged with rape and sexual abuse. We don't need to spend a ton of time on this. Uh, you guys can go and read the article at Slash Film for all of the details, but I figured it was worth mentioning, at least in this uh, episode, because it's one of the biggest stories in a long time. I mean, this is something that's a long time coming, and uh, it's been... Harvey Weinstein has been basically the face of the, uh, he, he started the snowball effect of the Me Too movement. So I wanted to sort of make sure everybody was aware of this. I think he was released on a million dollar bail today and he is going to have to wear an ankle bracelet and stay away from his accusers. So this uh, New York incident is not the only legal trouble that he's in. He's also facing some investigations in Los Angeles and in London, I believe, as well. So um, this is not the end of the story by any means, but uh, just one more 
um, jump along in uh, in the Harvey Weinstein saga. So I wanted to make sure that we covered that at the top of the show. Uh, speaking of weird sexual abuse stuff, let's let's transition into one of the strangest movie-related stories that I think any of us have probably heard about in a long time. Uh, Brad, tell us what's going on with this movie called Show Dogs. Yeah, so uh, Show Dogs is this you know, throw away whatever goofy family comedy that's made for parents to take their kids to so they can get some semblance of sanity for a couple hours out of their day. And the the movie itself, you know, is about Will Arnett as a detective being teamed up with this undercover police dog uh, named Max who is supposed to infiltrate this dog show where there's this baby panda that's being smuggled behind the scenes of this dog show for some reason. I, I, I don't know what, what the deal is with the story. But, any, <laughs> but anyway... Um, part of a normal dog show is for dogs to have their genitals inspected as part of like, you know, seeing if they're good for breeding and, and, and that kind of thing. And there's apparently a couple scenes in this movie because Max has to go undercover at a dog show where he is asked like to present his genitals and he basically gets, um, you know, fondled by these, these judges and whatnot. And apparently uh, the National Center on Sexual Exploitation thought that this was a very troubling thing to have in a kid's movie because it teaches kids that, like, it's kind of okay uh, when if some, a potential child abuser would ask them to do this kind of thing because that's sometimes what child abusers do, you know, to children when they're being total creeper, awful people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so they, they complained about this, and uh, Global Road Entertainment was initially like, well, this is being presented because it is a real part of a dog show. You know, it's, it's a, a moment that's played up. Uh, for laughs kind of thing, but then they decided that it was probably a better idea to uh, recut it, and they're going to get rid of those scenes. There's no um, uh, word on how they were planning to do that, if they were going to replace it with a different kind of joke or replace the scenes altogether, um, but the the new cut of the movie is supposed to be in theaters this weekend for families that go see it, and so yeah, this, this is such a unique situation because I can't even remember... Uh, a theatrically released movie having edits made while it was still in theaters like this. Yeah, that is totally crazy. This is not uh, the case of like a test screening audience um, going crazy and revolting about a plot point like this. This is something that was in like in real theaters. This is totally nuts. Jacob, have you ever heard of anything like this? Now, this is totally new to me, and it's a case where I, I'm I'm I'm, I'm jerked to both sides here because I'm thinking like, oh come on, this is so silly. But at the same time, I'm thinking. You know what? I get it. I get that complaint. I have a hard time, like, I have a hard time saying this is a, this is an incorrect response. So good on them. Uh, Chris, do you have any thoughts about this? Yeah, I'm sort of in the same way. Where when I first read this, I thought, well, that's just like silly knee-jerk reactionism. But uh, you know, this is a film for kids, so it does make sense. Like, if this were like an adult film that was. Like, you know, trying to be like a raunchy comedy for adults, then maybe it would be weird to, you know, pull it and reshoot it. But yeah, this is, is a, it's a movie geared toward kids. So this makes sense to yeah. pull it and recut it. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction to make here. It's such a strange thing. And like, when you think about how many people this had to go through and how many people had to give this an okay <laughs> to, to have this go through theaters and like nobody thought this was a problem, that's a, it's a little strange. Maybe that says something about the state of the industry right now. But uh, let's move on to our next. Next uh, topic, and that is Mudbound director D. Reese has a new movie with Netflix. Chris, tell us about that. Uh, yeah, so D. Reese, um, uh, she directed Mudbound for Netflix, and uh, it was previously announced that her next film would be The Last Thing He Wanted, which is adapted from a Joan Didion novel. 
And uh, we already knew that Anne Hathaway was going to star. So we already knew this movie was happening. But now today the news came that uh, Netflix is going to distribute that film. So obviously she's uh, D Reese is happy with Netflix enough to, to want to work with them again. Um, uh, I mean, this is good news in the sense that D Reese is a great director. Mudbound is a, is an excellent film and, you know, I, I want to see more from her, but uh, the only thing that gives me pause is that Netflix is very bad at advertising their films. I mean, even Mudbound, which got a bit of a push, uh, come Oscar season really uh, did not get advertised that well. It kind of got buried, you know, with all the other original content on Netflix. So, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, like I said, I, I want to see more films from her. I want DeVries to, you know, have success. But I also wish Netflix would do a better job pushing, you know, her films and everyone else's films that they have as well. Yeah, I think they gave Mudbound a very limited theatrical release. And that's one of the few films that Netflix has done that for, if I'm not mistaken. I, I think I wrote an article about that uh, last year when Mudbound came out. But um Brad, Jacob, have you guys seen Mudbound? What do you think about this news? See, this is the problem. I have not seen Mudbound because Netflix buried it so quickly, and I just <laughs> haven't had a chance to, to watch it. So I feel, I feel, yeah, great that D. Reese is working. Like it's amazing that this, that that she's making movies. But I, I I know for a fact that if this had hit theaters, I would have found time to watch it. Because when, when I'm at home and anything on Netflix, I want junk food. I, honestly, I want junk food. Whereas when I go to a theater, I want a full meal, and that's where I would go for a D. Reese movie. So I'm happy for her. Keep making those movies. But at the same time, I feel like really bad for myself because I do not know if she's making movies I want to watch at home. Right. Yeah. I mean, hopefully Netflix will maybe do a little bit more with the theatrical campaign this time around uh, if the movie warrants it. But it sounds like a, a cool project. And Anne Hathaway, I mean, that's always exciting, too. So, uh, yeah, we'll keep our eyes peeled for, for this one moving forward. Uh, Jacob, tell us about James Bond 25, whatever that film is ultimately going to be titled. There was some news. Bond Watch is back on. News broke last night. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, maybe we'll really cancel Bond Watch now. We're officially in, like, Bond mode. Where everything's getting official now. It's no longer rumors. And a lot of things that we've been hearing over the past few months were confirmed late last night. 25th James Bond movie, Untitled, is officially going to be directed by Danny Boyle, the Academy Award-winning director of Slumdog Millionaire, Sunshine, Train Spotting. Uh, it's an eclectic list of really interesting movies. Steve Jobs, one of the best movies of the past few years nobody watched. It'll be written by his frequent uh, collaborator, uh, the writer of Train Spotting, Train Spotting 2, John Hodge. And while we do not know a plot summary or even a supporting cast yet, Dion Craig is back. It is set for a 2019 release date, uh, specifically October 25th in the UK and November 8th in the United States. And it'll begin production in December on December 3rd of this year. So we're going to start hearing lots more about this soon because Eon, who controls the Bond rights and has for since the very beginning, they uh, make a big deal out of Bond casting news because they know it's a big deal. They know it's like this is a cultural watershed series that people all over the world want. So when they cast a villain, when they cast a Bond girl, we're going to get like huge press releases and and like huge presentations. It's going to be even even the title will get its like own party and press conference. It's, it's going to be a big deal. Uh, what's interesting though is that the past. Uh, four films, past past four Daniel Craig films, were uh, distributed by Sony uh, uh, via the partnership with Eon, and their deal dried up. And so a bunch of studios were vying for the chance to distribute the Bond movies. And because even though Eon will maintain the majority of the profits for these movies, uh, being able to distribute Bond is a, it just it looks really good for your studio. It makes you look really really cool. Uh, and so Sony is completely cut out, even though they were part of the 
group trying to vie to get back in with Eon. Uh, Annapurna, the small uh, upstart company, and MGM are going to co-team to distribute it uh, domestically. Uh, MGM has a long history with the Bond franchise, but they haven't distributed in this fashion since 2002's Die Another Day. And Universal, um, who coincidentally uh, released Steve Jobs, <laughs> um, <laughs> will do the international release. So it's it's a whole brand new world almost. You have a, well, a bunch of new people. We have a new director, new uh, new studios. Uh, if there's any way to announce, hey, this is we're sending Dylan Craig out out on a high note. This is not going to be Spectre all over again. I feel like this is the right approach so far. But what do you guys think? So uh, I think there there were two. This movie's been in development for a little while now, and there were two different paths that they were considering taking. I think there was a story that was being written by I think uh, Purvis and Wade, who are the writing team that have written a ton of Bond movies over the past probably 20 years. And then there was this other, in, you know, this track of Danny Boyle and John Hodge and this potential uh, idea. They basically approached Eon and said, "We have a take." Uh, let's let John Hodge knock out a draft of the script, show you guys this, and like as long as, long as everybody agrees, we'll move forward with this vision. So I think there were they were approaching and looking at a couple other different directors for the the first version of what this movie could be, but they weren't nearly the sort of auteur status filmmakers that Danny Boyle is. So that's what I want to hear Brad and Chris talk about. Do you guys think that Boyle is a good fit for the Bond franchise? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't dislike Danny Boyle, and uh, I actually agree with Jacob that Steve Jobs is a, a great movie, and uh, it sucks that no one went and saw it, but he's not really an action director. I mean, I guess, like, Train Spotting, the first one has scenes that, you know, have, like, a kinetic energy to them that can be considered action, but... I don't, I don't, I don't consider him off the top of my head to be like a, a, a great fit for this, but I could be wrong. I mean, you know, Sam Mendes wasn't really, didn't seem like a great fit. And, uh, you know, Skyfall I thought was excellent. So, you know, maybe, maybe he'll, he'll, he'll surprise me. Yeah. What do you, you know, think, Brad? What gives me hope that Danny Boyle can pull this off is probably 28 days later. But even then I feel like, 20 Days Later isn't necessarily on par with what you expect from the James Bond franchise. You know, it's it's bigger, it's, it's you know, less guerrilla filmmaking style, and honestly, uh, as somebody who loves Steve Jobs and has seen it a lot, actually, I've rewatched it probably more than any other person has, um, I felt like Danny, sometimes Danny Boyle's style gets in the way of the rest of the movie. And so I'm interested to see how he works with something like this, where a franchise already has kind of like an established style and where he can't really put too much of his own spin on it as a filmmaker. Like obviously he, uh, you know, every filmmaker that directs a bond movie kind of makes it their own, but there's also a lot of stuff that has to be in a bond movie to satisfy, you know, fans and general audiences. So I, I hope he can pull it off, but I'm, I'm, you know, kind of skeptical of that. So I have faith for. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just. I was gonna. I was gonna lob something. A question to you, Jacob, because I know you're yeah. a big Bond fan as well. And the question I was gonna ask was, um, because the initial idea for this was this Purvis and Wade potentially like a continuation of what we saw in Spectre, which was like everything is connected, all of this kind of stuff. Because uh, MGM and and Eon decided to go in this separate direction with bringing Danny Boyle in. Do you think that means that we're gonna get more of like a self-contained? Uh, Daniel Craig movie here than than I guess as opposed to 
a continuation that you know maybe brings back Christoph Waltz as Blofeld and that kind of thing? Do you think this is going to be more of a self-contained kind of film? I would put money on it being self-contained. I, I think that uh, Danny Boyle. The reason why I like him for this job is that he's nothing and not a genre experimenter. He likes jumping between all different kinds of things. He's never made the same film twice. He's made sci-fi adventures. He's made crime movies. He's made comedies. He's made adventures. He's made uh, Oscar like dramas. Uh, so I, I, I can't imagine him being super interested in joining a franchise unless it was like, I'm going to make a Danny Boyle Bond movie. I'm going to make a Bond movie as me, and it's, and it's me through and through in my sensibilities, which... I don't know what that looks like because Danny Boyle, like Steven Soderbergh, I feel like is very, very uh, fluid in what he in, in his filmmaking. He, he has his same touches that pop up here and there, uh, but I feel like there are a few working directors who are as malleable as he is. But I guess to um, talk about Brad's point um, and, and Chris's point about Danny Boyle being uh, an action director, or is he is he an action director? Uh, I, this is where I'm not concerned at all because the Bond franchise, Eon's Machine has such a strong second unit team and they're the ones who handle all the action. They stage all of it, they shoot all of it and they um, handle all the big action and all the big stunts. And if Danny Boyle lets them do their thing and just takes care of in the editing room, it's going to be fine. The one time this didn't work was um, uh, Mark, Mark Forster, who directed Quantum of Solace, chopped to bits all the second unit team's uh, footage for Quantum of Solace, which is why those actually are rubbish. Mm. But uh, Danny Boyle is going to be handed top-notch um, action directed by people who know what they're doing. So as long as, as long as he chooses not to screw it up in the post, uh, it's gonna be fine. Cool, cool. All right, yeah, I'm very excited to see what Danny Boyle does, and really like the idea of Eon picking an auteur director, uh, somebody who has it is so stylish a, a director like Boyle is known to be. That's something that they typically don't do. You know, they typically pick people who will f sort of fit more within that machine. And I'm curious to see how much of Boyle we're going to be able to see in that final product. But uh, as you mentioned, the movie comes out in, I think, November of 2019, so we don't have that much longer to wait. Let's uh, slowly start transitioning into some Star Wars talk, because today is the uh, opening day of Star uh, Solo, A Star Wars Story. Um, Chris, tell us what Donald Glover wants the Lando movie, the eventual Lando Calrissian solo film that we all know is coming. What does he want that movie to be like? Donald Glover wants that to be Frasier in space, uh, which no, no, I don't think anyone was predicting. And uh, but now I want to see that immediately. Um, he clarifies by saying this is a direct quote. He says, like a high end guy in space, all these characters are very specific and they have very specific points of view. So it's always going to be fun to see them traveling around to a planet that is the opposite of what they're used to. Um, so, you know, I guess when he says he wants it to be Frasier in space, he, you know, he's talking about, you know, how, how classy Lando is and uh, dealing with, uh, a, a, a classless world as, as Frasier sometimes, uh, dealt with, but <laughs> just, just, just saying he wants it to be Frasier in space is enough for me. Like that, that, that's the direction I now want them to go in. And I hope Kathleen Kennedy is listening. <laughs> That's so great. Brad, so I know you're a huge, you're probably the biggest Star Wars fan uh, on this podcast episode. Do you think this is a good approach for a Lando film? Oh, for sure. Especially because if 30 Rock taught us anything, it's that Fraser loves pulling off heists because he ran an ice cream store into the ground by uh, running a grift with Jenna Maroney on that show <laughs> to make money off of ice cream cakes. So if anybody can make Lando even more of a successful smuggler, it's the style of Fraser. 
Amazing. All right, so let's, uh, I guess maybe we should put a spoiler warning here. I, I have to assume that all of the diehard Star Wars fans probably saw the film last night, but I guess just a, a light spoiler warning for this next story, and then we'll put a bigger spoiler warning onto the story after that. But uh, Brad, tell us about uh, something that you noticed in the music for Solo, A Star Wars Story. Yeah, this is just kind of a cool uh, little thing that happens in Solo, A Star Wars Story, and it's, it's in the first act, so it doesn't really uh, ruin anything. But um, the, a point when uh, Han's on the run after trying to escape Corellia, uh, he's not s- supposed to have gotten through the, the the sort of border control that the planet has that's in place by the Empire. And while he's hiding, he's kind of trying to figure out what to do uh, in order to, you know, kind of move forward, figure out what, what he can do uh, as far as surviving that kind of thing. And he sees some propaganda posters and a, a holographic video that is trying to convince people to join the Empire, uh, be, to re- be recruited by the Imperial Academy. And so he thinks that that's his best way to maybe uh, get, figure out a place in the world, maybe make some money, and then cu- come back and you know um, to Corellia and save Kira from this you know world of crime that uh, she could end up perpetually stuck in. And when he sees this holographic video, there's a voiceover that has the typical, you know, make a difference, join the Empire today. But there's also music playing along with it, and it just so happens to be the Imperial March that John Williams composed for the original trilogy. is one of the most famous Star Wars themes. And when you think about it at first, that's, you're like, yeah, of course they're going to use the Imperial March to represent the Empire, duh. But what's interesting about this is this is the first time that John Williams' music has been used as a song that is within the world of the movie itself, as diegetic music. So the Imperial March is not only music that we hear as an audience to represent the Empire and make them look cool when they're walking through Death Star hallways, but it's actually like almost like the national anthem of the Empire that they play to like give them this, this sense of power and pride and that kind of thing. So I thought that was just a really cool little thing that they did with the Imperial March and you know have made it part of you know the Empire itself. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, Jacob, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, it's a really cool choice, and it's uh, a cheeky choice because the entire uh, score for this movie is full of little things that play on our memories and play on our recognition for these familiar notes. So by placing that uh, Imperial March there, it immediately pings uh, so many feelings that we have about the Empire and about about this world. And I know Brad's writing a larger post about this for next week, and you can read that on the site in a few days. Uh, But John Powell's score is constantly quoting Williams in surprising, amazing, fun ways. And there's even one uh, track that is, it's during the Kessel Run of the movie before you actually watch it, but it's almost nonstop repurposing of John Williams in ways that are both triggering you uh, to remember things, also jarring you in, in ways that are uh, surprising and unusual. And it's such it's such a pleasurable score. And after Michael Giacchino's passable, you know, okay Rogue One score, it's really fun to see a composer really go full Williams, both in terms of quoting and in terms of doing something unique and special with this score. Chris, did you have any thoughts about the music of this movie? I, I have to admit that I didn't really notice a lot of this stuff. And, I, and even like the quoting of Williams and the, you know, the the music in this film for me just sort of uh, whizzed past my head as like another fun sort of uh, disposable element of this movie, which is sort of how I feel about the whole film itself. Did you notice the music? Did you appreciate any particular aspects of it? Uh, it's it's definitely a more memorable score than Rogue One. I mean, you know, it doesn't come close to anything John Williams ever did because no one ever will. But I have to say, 
you know, I, I noticed the, you know, the Imperial March 2 scene. And uh, rather than thinking like, oh, that's a neat callback, it just, it's like screwing with my mind because I can't help be like, does this mean John Williams exists in the Star Wars universe <laughs> and he's composing music there? Like, who wrote the music for the Empire? Was it also John Williams? Does that mean he lives in the, and, and I couldn't stop. And now I'm like obsessing over it and. <laughs> I just wish they hadn't done it. Thanks a lot, Ron Howard. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. All right, so now I want to drop a huge spoiler warning. So if you've not seen Solo, tune out now. And, okay, this is your final warning. So there is one pretty horrifying moment in this movie, and uh, I wrote about it a little bit on the site today. It was inspired by a tweet from writer-comedian Mike Drucker, who said, there's a part of Solo that can be construed as the darkest, most black mirror thing to happen in all of Star Wars, and I'm curious if anyone else felt that way. And the moment he's talking about is when L3-37, the droid played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, is uploaded into the Millennium Falcon and essentially trapped there for all time. And so in the movie, she's wounded outside of this mining facility on Kessel and Lando tries to save her. He gets her, you know, up aboard the Falcon and she basically dies in his arms. But somebody suggests, I think it's Han Solo, suggests importing her consciousness into the computer system so they can utilize the nav navigational data that she's acquired over the years to help them, I guess, survive the Kessel Run, get where they need to be as quickly as they need to get there. So nobody in the movie really blinks an eye about this, and, and they just essentially doom her to an eternity trapped inside the Millennium Falcon. I know, Jacob, you have some thoughts about this. Yes, uh... The Black Mirror reference in particular is referring to a piece of technology uh, revealed in the show's Christmas special called Black uh, called White Christmas, um, called a cookie. And in the show, this is a uh, digital clone of your consciousness. It's everything that makes you you uh, in a digital form inside a computer. And in the show, these digital used are used to power smart homes and um, are essentially, even though they're, they're fully conscious beings, uh, live in a world of nothing and are used as slave labor and are tormented um, by uh, by time manipulation to be servants in every possible way. And it's the most horrifying thing I've ever witnessed in any pop culture item ever. I think about it every day and it upsets me. So, so the idea that L3, the um, a droid who lives to free other droids, who's all about droid rights, he's all about um, being free to do what she wants to do, damn it. The fact that she, against her will, was uploaded into the Millennium Falcon and it spent the past 30 some odd years powering it, possibly screaming on the inside to, to, to die or be let out. Who knows? We don't know because nobody can hear her because she's now, she's now a slave. She's not a machine. She never wanted to be. And it's so upsetting because nobody in the movie references it. Lando never says, I can't do that to L3. Um, Leia, uh, not Leia, um, Kira uh, never says, um, should we pause and think about this? we're doing this sentient being nobody ever mentions it and it's so horrible and i hate it i like the movie a lot but i hate this yeah it's uh it's pretty distressing when you stop to think about it the thing is i didn't really stop to think about it because the movie is kind of breezy and it just like blows right past it and like you said none of the characters uh, you know blink at all at this notion chris did you think about this at all was this another thing that uh, that bothered you during the making the, or during the watching this movie it did, because it's very, uh, you know, like we, we've said, it's very strange how they no one seems to care about it, especially because 
when you know spoilers obviously when l3 dies lando is very upset about that he's you know and it's established early in the film that they have a very uh unique relationship with each other and you know when she dies he's he looks really heartbroken about it but then the minute it's like let's rip out her brain and put it in the the millennium falcon he doesn't like hesitate at all he's fine with it and it's just it's very weird like i feel like if the ship like talked with her voice, mm-hmm. it would be a little less weird, but they obviously can't do that because that's never happened in any other star Wars. Stuff, so they can't suddenly have, you know, the ship talking, but I feel like that'd be like the only way to get around it and make it less weird, but they can't do it. And so now she, yeah, she's, you know, this silent trapped, <laughs> uh, you know, soul quote unquote. So it, it's very strange that no one addresses it. So I, I know that uh, Peter Serretta has an article that sort of touches on this that I think is going to be going up on the site on Monday. So I, I'm not going to say what that is, but I just want to put that on people's radar. If you're interested in this conversation and, and finding out a little bit more about this, uh, stay tuned yeah, to Slash Film. Yeah, because there, there is some something uh, that's, yeah, the, the connection to the original trilogy that makes it somewhat forgivable, but it, it's I think part of the it, what might make it a less uh, I don't know controversial thing is maybe droid mechanics don't make it too easy to transfer a droid's consciousness into another droid's body, or maybe because she's a droid that was created with spare parts and like is much different from other droids, maybe it's not so easy to put her in you know the position of, a, of another droid that that's the only thing that i can think of but at the same time that does make the fact that they're so easily able to put that consciousness into the falcon a little bit more hard to believe so it's it, yeah it, it's tough to approach so brad as the resident expert in all things star wars on this episode i, I want to throw i want to end this podcast by asking you do you think that this is truly like the, one of the darkest and most bleak things to happen in any star wars movie can you think of anything that tops this uh i mean darth vader lost three of his limbs and had his entire body burned um i think that's pretty dark and twisted um so, he still but... had free will brad he still had free will <laughs> and and pain is temporary this is eternal you know i don't know <laughs> i mean it, it, yeah it's i mean <laughs> it's it's eternal in in one form i suppose but you know if the millennium falcon ever blows up then not so eternal <laughs> that's true that's true i, I, I suppose it, it's, it's just as eternal as it would be if she were in a droid body that can also be destroyed as as it was in solo Right. Yep. Yep. All right. So that's a good point. All right. I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. Let's go around the circle and tell people where they can find more of our work online. Uh, Chris, let's start with you. Uh, I'm at SlashFilm.com and I'm on Twitter at Evangelista 413 Jacob? I'm at SlashFilm.com and I'm on Twitter where I'm at Jacob S. Hall. Brad? Also SlashFilm.com. You can find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton and Maybe give a listen to my podcast, Go Flix Yourself, available on iTunes if you want some laughs and other movie chatter. Oh, yeah, that, that reminds me. I uh, used to host a podcast called the Not Just New Movies podcast. Uh, I started in, like, 2010, and my co-host and I have been doing it sort of off and on for years since then. We've been uh, on a huge break for a while, but we just relaunched, uh, started t- starting today, a new mini-series of uh, a few episodes in a row over this summer. So you can find that at notjustnewmovies.com if you want to. Uh, listen to me talk on another podcast. It, it, Jacob or Chris, do you guys have any other podcasts you want to plug? 
No. Nothing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, oh, also, I should mention, I don't think we're going to be doing an episode of this podcast on Monday because Monday is Memorial Day. So I just want to throw that out there for the regular listeners of the show. Don't expect an episode. If something huge breaks, like we just had an emergency episode yesterday about the new Star Wars news, if something like that happens, we'll do an episode. But uh, for the most part, I think just expect to hear us again on Tuesday. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Ben Pears. And I think, yeah, that's going to bring us to the end of this episode. So you can find more of the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked in the show notes notes of this episode. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. And please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That helps us out a lot. Tell your friends, spread the word and we'll see you guys on Tuesday.